morning, church. Great to see you. Welcome. My name is Greg Paris. Wasn't the, weren't the baptism beautiful? Wasn't that just the best thing? Nothing is more beautiful than that. We are uh, baptizing 20 people t- this weekend in our services, and so that was a uh, beautiful representation. So proud of all those candidates. And perhaps uh, this prompts you to think about your own baptism. Two things. If you haven't been baptized, think about it. Next, uh, next round of baptisms. And the second thing, if you have been baptized, don't forget your baptism and the commitment you made there. Don't forget your baptism. Hang on to that. We're in a series uh, that we're calling God's at War. It is, a, uh, it is an attempt to identify some of the, the lesser gods, the little gods that tend to want to get in our way and get in our face and try to distract us from a, an authentic relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And we've talked about romance and pleasure and money. And today I want to talk about success, which can be an issue for many people here because we know success among our ranks. And we want to uh, study the story between the encounter with Jesus and the rich young ruler. Very interesting story, and I hope we can gain perspective from it. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 18 to 30. Uh, If not, of course, we'll project the words on the screen. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, honor God's word, and so you're able. Thank you for doing that. And we'll begin again at verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, now Matthew's gospel, when it reports this encounter, describes this man as a rich and young ruler. So we know that he's young, relatively, and we know that he is wealthy. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks of Jesus. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we've left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. And may God inspire, instruct us, enlighten us through his word today. Thanks so much. You may be seated. Well, we know the God of success has no problem finding followers. I mean, it's very alluring. Success cries out to us and says, This is what attractive looks like. This is what compelling looks like. This is what charismatic looks like. And he walks into our everyday rat race world and shows us what life could be at the top of the heap. This is what it looks like to be successful. And we are tempted by it. The applause, the envy of others, the the riches that come oftentimes with it. 
And the promise, of course, made by the God of success is that you can be in control of your own life. You can be in charge. You can call the shots. You're successful now. You've got leverage. You've got contacts. You've got resources. You can do and be anything you want. And that, of course, is what is the, the greatest temptation. Gods of success, then, are all about personal achievement and rewards. It's about the title after your name. It's the sum on your paycheck. It's the square footage of your home. And on and on it goes. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are here probably old enough to remember a game called King of the Hill or King of the Mountain? Raise your hand if you remember that game. These are the old people in the room. How how many of you are in the room you've never heard King of the Hill or King of the Mountain? These are younger people. Are you sure, ma'am? You have not heard of it? Okay. So the, the sheer brutality of the game has probably outlawed it for most schoolyards now. But anytime you had a little mound of dirt or a hill of any kind, you could become king of the hill by simply standing on the hill and keeping anyone else from standing on the top of the hill. And so it was, very, it was a very physical game, biggest and strongest usually won, king of the mountain. And it was a big deal. Back in the day, I mean, we'd come in from recess and of course the, you know, the pigtails were all frayed and our shirts may have been stretched down to our armpit and dirt all over our face. And the teacher may have said, what have you guys been doing? And we'd just say, someone says, king of the mountain. And she'd go, oh yeah. But today, you know, they'd call the police, call the authorities, government would get involved. It'd be a, be a big hassle, big process. <laughs> I, I played some high school and college athletics and, and over the years I've uh, been tempted to reminisce about, um, about who was the best sort of thing. This is what some people do. The older you get, here's, here's my story. The older I get, the older I am, the better I was. Can I get a witness? Can I get a testimony? It's true. The older I get, the smarter I was. The older I get, you know, I was the best dancer. I was the best debater. I was the best musician. I was the best whatever. Uh, so as we get older, we get really good in our memories. And I've tried to think about, tried to think about areas uh, of expertise in my high school. You know, who, was the, who were the best athletes that came out of my high school? You know, and I wonder if I would get on the list, you know, that sort of thing. And I thought about that just for a little while. I did this for a few, several years ago, and I stopped thinking about it because I know exactly who the best athlete who ever graduated from our high school is. Her name is Jan. She is head and shoulders more accomplished than anybody who ever graduated from our school. Jan was a senior in high school when I was a sophomore, and everybody knew who she was because she was, you know, an unusual athlete. And back in the day, this is before Title IX and girls and women's sports became more prominent. And in our high school back in the day, there were only two sports that we can recall that girls could participate in. One was swimming and diving, and the other was track and field. And Jan was an exceptional athlete and starred in track and field. In fact, she qualified for the state finals, state championship in track and field, and won all four events that she entered. Our high school that year actually got third in the state track and field championships, and we only had one qualifier. It was Jan. <laughs> now, here are, these four, here are these four events that she won. She won the 100-yard dash, won the state. She won the 60-yard hurdles. She won the high jump, and she won the softball throw. 
This was one of the events in girls track and field back in the day, softball throw. It could have been a javelin throw. It could have been a discus throw. It could have been a shot put throw. It could have been anything, put anything in her hand. She would have thrown it further than any other girl in the state. She was a beast. When, if, when I say those different events, you're thinking some kind of long and lean, you know, athletic kind of looking person. She was not, she was not long and lean. She was heavily muscled. She was very powerful and she was, she was trouble. She went through our school because I think she was frustrated for the lack of opportunity for competition. My wife says I take too long to tell this story, but I, just stay with me. <laughs> uh, so I like telling it. So, yeah, there we go. I'm not how much preaching there is in it, but it's a story anyway. So, so here's, here's the deal. She would, she would challenge boys in school to various, you know, feats, uh, athletically. And she was very accomplished in basketball. In fact, she, she graduated from our high school, went to Indiana State University and, and immediately became an All-American in basketball. She's in the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame today because of her coaching. So she's a very accomplished person. She was just amazing. So, so I got out of class early for some reason one day during high school basketball season and and so I went down to the gym, tr- changed that into my practice gear. I was just going to go out and warm up, you know, shoot around before practice. Well, when I got out there, there was one other person in the gym, and it was Jan. And she's shooting, dribbling around, and she's a senior, and I'm a sophomore. Jan's about 5'9", and she's Jan. And I'm the same height I am now. I was about 6'4", but I only weighed 18 pounds when I was a sophomore. <laughs> so... So I walked out there and I go to the other end of the floor because, you know, I just want to stay away from her. She's notorious. Well, it wasn't 30 seconds and she made her way over. She walked right up to me and she said, you want to play some one-on-one? <laughs> now, immediately I'm on the horns of dilemma because if I say no, I know exactly what she'll do. Before noon the next day, I will be known across the school as a chicken because I won't play her in one-on-one. And so I can't have that. My pride won't let that happen. I'm too weak for that. I'm not, I'm not formed enough for that. So I can't say no to the challenge. And so now I'm I, on the other side of the horn of dilemma. There's dilemma because now I have to play her. And who knows what's going to happen? And the worst thing that could happen is you lose. And, you know, losing to a girl is, you know, it's just not the best thing, you know, for a 15-year-old's sense of confidence. I don't know. I hearken back to a Reggie Miller story. Some of you know Reggie Miller, who's now a Hall of Fame, NBA Hall of Famer, who grew up in a household whose older sister was always better than she was. He was. And so Cheryl, his sister, uh, was very accomplished. Reggie tells this story. It's hilarious. I mean, he's, he's, he's a Hall of Famer in the NBA you know, one of the great, greatest shooters of all time. And his sister regularly pounded him growing up in basketball. He scored 40 points the first time in his high school career, and he came home, he was thinking he was feeling pretty good. He scored 40 points, and that is phenomenal. Scored 40 points in a high school game. And, Sh- and Cheryl was asking him uh, how it went. Well, I got 40. That's fantastic, Reggie. Way to go. You know, I'm so proud of you. Good job. And Reggie said, well, didn't you have a game tonight? She said, yeah, yeah, I did okay. She, he said, well, how many did you get? 
He said, no, it's not necessary for me to tell you that, Reggie. You know, I'm just proud of you for getting 40. He said, no, I need to know. How many did you get tonight? And Cheryl said, I got 100. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you can't win. So, so back to Jan. And so now I say yes. And, and when you're accustomed to one-on-one -on -one in basketball, you, the rules come together very quickly. So in about eight seconds, we go, we'll play 10 baskets, win by two, um, alternating possession, Every missed shot you have to take back to the free throw line. Perfect. Eight seconds, we got the rules. We're going to 10 baskets, win by two. And before I can turn around, I'm behind four to nothing. <laughs> and I'm back, in, I'm back in this dilemma again because I, I said to myself, it's really the first time I've ever competed with a girl, you know, in a serious way. I mean, I've got two younger sisters. That wasn't much resistance out in the, you know, driveway. And so I've never done this before. And so I'm 15 years old. It's a little awkward. And so I'm thinking to myself, I'm taller than her and hopefully a little more skilled than she is. And so I think I can, without making physical contact with her, I can beat her. Because that was the awkward part. Am I taking too long? <laughs> but I'm behind four to nothing. And so now I have, to, I have to wrestle with this. You know, this all happens in about two seconds. Okay, I can either not touch her, not really, you know, get up in her space and come really compete with her and lose, or I can really try my best and maybe I can win. Well, losing just wasn't... It was the worst of the two evils. And so I decided I'll deal with the consequences of, un, of improper physical contact later. But for now, I got to deal with the scoreboard. And so I got all up in her space. And, you know, and it's, I'm 15, you know, she's 18. And, and, you know, how does, where do you put, where do you put your hands? You know, where does it go? How does that work? And I, you know, I get embarrassed just thinking about it. And that was 50 years ago. So it's, it was, it was awkward. And so, but Jan didn't care because Jan's determined, you know, she's, She's looking for, her. and and so then the game got very competitive, very competitive, and now folks are starting to come in for practice, and teammates and other students are, are circled the court. Now this is becoming uh, an event, <laughs> and so I caught her and I, I I got past her and I finally scored the last basket. She wasn't happy at all, and I beat her ten to eight. And she immediately grabs the ball out of the basket. She put it under her arm. She walks right up to me. You know, she's 5'9", so she almost looked me in the eye. She just looked me like this. She said, two out of three. And I, and I said, no thanks. No thanks. We're not going any further. And that's where we've left it now for 50 years. I beat Jan. Thank you very much. Not an easy thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Yes, sir. She was something, I'm, I'm telling you, she was great. Sociologists tell us that our culture defines success this way. This is, how, this is how the world defines success. It's the prestige that comes from attaining an elevated social status. Let's just put it in practical terms. It's winning a big public game of King of the Mountain. Just winning. Or one-on-one -on -one with Jan. That puts you in a success category. Success wants us to bow down to a position, a hierarchy, a ranking order in society. 
It's about prestige, it's about clout, it's about respect, it's about recognition, it's having the right seat at the table, the right space in the parking lot, the right title on the business card, it's the right clothes in the closet, it's the watch, it's the trophy, it's the promotion, it's the award, it's success. Success is finding out how the score is kept and then scoring. That's how the world defines it. Now I, want, I have three ideas that I wanna just convey briefly this morning from our text. And the first is on your outline and it's this, the distinction between the word success and blessed. Success versus blessed. I want you to follow this. Is achieving, is climbing through the ranks, is being ambitious in whatever category of life, is that wrong? Well, think about the difference between these two words, success and blessed. Success is a word, when you study the scripture, success is found only a handful of times in the whole Bible. The word success, the word blessed is everywhere. It's almost on every page of the Bible. And so there must be some important distinction we should make between these two concepts. Let me put it this way. Success is when we achieve Blessed is when we receive. Now stay with me, stay with me. Success is a word we use to speak of something that we have done and accomplished. And blessed is the indication, not that you have done something, but that something has been done for us, added to us, assisted us, helped us. This is more than semantics because the world's success puts the emphasis on being self-sufficient and self-reliant. Hear those phrases, self-reliant. Think, think about that for a minute. I don't need anything or anyone. I am self-sufficient. I, I don't even need God. I'm in, I'm in charge here. I'm in control of all of this is going on. Acting as if we have it all figured out. But Jesus redefines a successful life as one that humbly says to God, I do, not, I do not have everything I need. I can't do this on my own. I need help. Years ago, Beth and I, my wife, we built a, a new home here in Delaware County. It was very, very nice, very nice home. We had some guests over a year or two after we had moved in and we were giving them a tour and we got into the master suite. It's very nice, I mean, it's a beautiful house. And we were in there and the wife said, your home is just beautiful. I'm so impressed with it. And this, I heard myself say these words. I said, thank you very much. It is beautiful. We're so thankful that God allows us to live here. I mean, it is so nice. And God lets us live here. I'm just grateful for that. I heard myself say that and I thought, that is the right answer. I was encouraging myself by what I said, because that's the right perspective. Of course, there's all kinds of achievement that happens in all kinds of lives all the time. I mean, I'm looking at successful people as I look out over the congregation this morning. We understand what it means to achieve, to, to reach levels of potential and, and, to, and to go for the best and highest opportunity. And, and it's, a, it's a good and a great thing. So our perspective on these accomplishments are very critically important. And the perspective must remain that I am not in charge of my life. I don't own anything along the way. 
I am utterly dependent on God's favor and his goodness and his grace and his strength and the natural capacity he gives me. And most of all, I can, de I can declare without any hesitation, I'm blessed. My life is blessed. Uh, we, all, we all have these categories of success that we found in our lives. And the right perspective is to make sure that we give God the credit for everything that has come our way. I, are you successful? I, well, you know, I'm not sure how you measure that, but I can tell you I'm blessed. I'm a blessed person. Where would I be without Jesus? I don't even think about it. I want to think about it. Weren't these baptism testimonies beautiful? So, so you can, it's just so great. So you can, you can, I mean, just in very dramatic fashion today, acknowledge what is life without Jesus? How does that work? How's that turn out? And what difference does having Jesus in your life make? It's a big difference. Knowing Jesus really matters. And if you're a person who has all kinds of natural capacity and ability to, you know, just to, to, to move upward in life in all these categories, be thankful for that. Give God thanks because he has truly blessed your life. In Luke 18, we read the story of a man who's confronted with a choice. This rich young ruler is accomplished, he's achieved, he's accumulated, and he's worshiping all of these gods of success. Now, I picture this guy as young, as he's described. I picture him as handsome. I picture him as well-appointed. I mean, he's, you know, he's got one of those $1,000 robes on. He's sharp. You know, he's driven up in a Ferrari. He's, he's got it going on. And he, maybe a Porsche. And he's, he's got it going on. And he's, he's all that. And he's just dripping with all kinds of capacity. But notice now he is serving the gods of success. This young ruler, ruler is a person who's an official. He has authority. So he's, he's got status in the community. And he walks up to Jesus and he says, good teacher. He's respectful. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And right away, he reveals his, a false God. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, the Greek word for inherit there means what must I do to acquire or to earn? Now note what he's doing. He sees eternal life as a measure of personal success. He's got this beautiful resume. I mean, it's spectacular. It's a world-class resume. I mean, he's touched all the boxes. Got the right, he's got the right culture. He's got the right upbringing. He's got the right education. He's got the right contacts. He's got the right reference. He's got a beautiful resume. I mean, it's world-class resume. And he wants to include, because he's a good guy and he's thoughtful and he wants to do the right thing. He's a religious guy, apparently. He wants, to, he wants to check off the box, eternal life. I got that too. But he sees it as just another thing that he can acquire, he can achieve. And, and, and so in verses 19 and 20, Jesus said, why do you call me good? Good teacher, he says, why do you call me good? And then Jesus answers, no one's good except God alone. You know the commandments, don't commit adultery, murder, steal, give false witness, honor your father and mother. All these, he said, the young man said, well, I've kept all those since I was a boy. Yeah, yeah, can I check the box now? Jesus said, wait just a second. <laughs> so he's, he's just trying to add to his resume, add to, add to his portfolio, just another measure of success. Oh yeah, I have eternal life too. The problem is, that no one other than Jesus has actually fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. 
No one has done it successfully. All of us have failed. You have failed. I have failed. All of God's children have failed at at following all the rules all the time. And Jesus reminds him, he says, look, nobody's good, pal. Only God is good. And so don't tell me you've kept all of that stuff since your youth. Yeah. And ironically, he's putting his hope in his religion. His, his religious rules keeping, had become his God. It's part of his success quotient. We put our trust in our own mastery of rule keeping. But watch this. The God of success invites you to save yourself instead of depending on Jesus to do it. This is one of the reasons I believe the most successful people are often those who have the hardest time following Jesus. You know, you're successful and you just go, why do I need Jesus? Got everything I want. Get all the attention I need. Have the status, you know, I was shooting for. Who needs Jesus? So being a devoted disciple means you must acknowledge your own helplessness and ultimate need for rescue. The greatest need in anyone's life in the world is the need to know our need, to recognize it. And the more successful we are in the world's standards, the more difficult it becomes for us to recognize our need. Jesus said in our text today how how hard it is for a rich person to get into heaven. It's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, when you, when you read that in our vernacular, we think a needle, we think a little sewing needle. How do you get a camel through, you know, the eye of a th- sewing? Jesus' context, historical context, was r- relative to uh, smaller archways, doorways in the city through the wall that were low. And so you had to stoop down to get through them and a camel for a camel to get through the camel would literally have to get down on its knees and crawl through this eye of the needle in order to get in jesus is just saying look the, the primary the primary posture of a person who inherits eternal life is the person filled with humility who's humble enough to recognize their need are you are you hearing and so and, and so this is point one this is how important it is Uh, Listen to uh, another voice in our culture today, Bill Maher. Some of you know him. He's a TV pundit. And he said this of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And I quote, he said, I just don't get it. The thought of someone else cleansing me of my sins is ridiculous. I don't need anyone to cleanse me. I can cleanse myself. Let me just say, if Bill's within earshot, good luck with that, Bill. Good luck with that. Hope it works. This is why Warren Buffett, this is a name that perhaps you recognize after donating 85% of his $44 billion of net worth to charity. He said, and I quote, there's more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. And we say, sure, it would be a great way. Just save up enough money, save up enough bucks, brownie points, box tops, soup labels, Chuck E. Cheese tickets, whatever you collect, redeem all, collect them all. And then when you die, redeem them at the pearly gates. That'd be perfect. That makes sense to us because we all understand life is all about earning things, making our own way. If you want something, you work for it. You pay for everything in blood, sweat, and tears. You know, you build a new house because you worked hard and you earned a little bit and you got favor with, and, and you have opportunity and, and all of these things. And so, yeah, that's what you do. You, you get what you pay for. In most walks of life, that's a good system. But when it comes to guilt, when it comes to shame, there is a big problem. There's a huge problem. 
there's a problem that's so big that we can't overcome it. And it goes like this, we'll never be successful enough. We'll never be good enough. We'll never keep the rules enough. Let me make this point as clearly as I can. I'll put this statement on the screen. There are not enough deeds or donations in the whole world to buy an ounce of the purity we need to find eternal life. So in God's economy, success only comes when we declare our spiritual bankruptcy. The greatest teaching in all of humanity, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said it this way, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what he meant by that was people who recognize their utter lostness, their utter bankruptcy spiritually without hope found in Christ. So the second point, it's on your outline, you have to choose. You have to choose. Back to the rich young ruler, he's not connecting the dots. Jesus knows his heart. In Mark's gospel, when this occasion is reported, it says in verse 21, chapter 10, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And when you imagine this rich young ruler, you go, what's not to like? I mean, he's a lovable guy. I mean, he's, he's just all that. I mean, he's all, he's all put together. And he's, he's really impressive. And so in verse 22, Jesus aims for the God that is winning the war in this man's life. Jesus literally dropped a bomb on this kid. He starts by reminding him nobody's good, keep the commandments. The kid said, I keep them all. And Jesus said, well, then there's one more thing you lack because you don't get it. One more thing you lack. Take everything you own and sell it and give it to the poor. And then he said, come and follow me. You understand what Jesus is offering this guy. There's 12 followers, 12 disciples following Jesus. He's about to add 13. He sees so much potential, so much hope, so much promise in this young guy. Jesus said to him, listen, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you come and follow me and I'll show you what real life's about. Man, it's quite a moment. So he looks into the heart of this passionate, successful young man, so so well-appointed, so energetic, so well-meaning. He's a good guy. He wants to keep the rules. And he sees that God is not on the throne of his heart. So Jesus puts himself in direct competition with this guy. Much of like what he's been doing in this series for some of you when I've talked about romance or talked about pleasure, talked about money. Some of you've had to be confronted with this. And so Jesus literally throws himself right in front of this young man and his God of success and wealth. And he says to him, look, you can have your money. You can have your success. You can have all of your accomplishments. You can have the social status that you desire. You can have all of that, or you can have me, but you can't have both. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Have you ever heard those two phrases in combination? He was very sad, why? We know why, because, it's in the, it's in the verse, because, why? He's a man of great wealth. You don't really associate great wealth with sadness, do you? But it happened in his life. He was a rich, young ruler, and Jesus was offering him an opportunity to be a poor, young servant. Hmm. Here's what happened. Now think about this. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This is Jesus standing in front of him. 
Imagine this moment. And Jesus said, look, I'll give you, I'll give you life. You, you have no idea what real life is. You, you turn loose of the gods that you've been serving and come and follow me and I'll show you something. I'll show you something. What a great moment. What a great opportunity. But what, is, what happens to him? The God of success had put a hook in this young guy's nose and immediately he turns away from Jesus and walks away sad. Immediately he turns and walks. Jesus Jesus could have chased him. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, I see so much potential in you. I don't want you to get away this easily. He could have chased him and said, did I, did I say you had to sell everything, give up everything? Well, let's negotiate. Maybe if you just give up some of the, you know, the really important things to you. And then we can renegotiate. Jesus didn't treat this like a negotiation. Here's what Jesus did. Let him walk away. What was the name of the rich young ruler? You know his name? Nobody does. It's not mentioned. What became of him? We don't know. We're not told. Did the rich young ruler become a a rich old ruler? And if he did, who cares? What if the rich young ruler in that moment when Jesus confronted him and the gods that he was serving, he had said, all right, I'm gonna give up everything I have in order to follow you for everything you offer to me. Could be we'd been talking about the 13 disciples. Could be we'd been talking about a fifth gospel, not just four gospels, but a fifth gospel written by this guy because he had so much, so much capacity. But we never find out what becomes of him. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 6, 24, you can look on the screen, no one can serve two masters, either he'll hate the one, love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one, despise the other. Look at Mark 10, 23, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Can you imagine the sadness in Jesus' eyes? Because he loved this guy. So, so optimistic, so hopeful, and yet walking away in despair. It hurt Jesus, I'm sure. So the last point is a simple one. Jesus is my purpose. Jesus is my purpose. For some people, the idea of standing before God without an impressive resume is unthinkable. We want to show him our success. We want to prove to him how worthy we are. But the real problem with idolatry is that we are always constantly looking for something else to be our salvation when we need to keep our focus on Jesus. He is our savior. He's our salvation. Some people, people in this room talking to you, listen, you're lonely. And so you look to other relationships for your salvation. Or you're empty and you look to possessions for salvation. Or you're depressed, you look for food for salvation, or you're rejected. So you look to pornography for salvation, or you're angry and you look to alcohol for salvation, or you're apathetic and you look to work for salvation, or you're proud or you look for status for salvation, or you're worried and you look to money for salvation. And all these ancillary issues of life, they're constantly circling and constantly demanding our attention and 
trying to distract us from the main thing. And Jesus calls out and says, just keep, keep your eyes focused on me. All these other things will be added. Millard Fuller tells of becoming a millionaire by the age of 29. He said he had bought his wife everything she could possibly want. One day he came home to a note that announced that she had left him. Millard went after her. He found her on a Saturday night in a hotel in New York City. They talked into the wee hours of the morning and she poured out her heart and made him see that the things that our society says are supposed to be so satisfying had left her cold. She said to her husband, her heart was empty and her spirit was burned out. She was dead inside and she wanted to live again. So she had to get away from him. Kneeling at their bedside in that hotel room, Millard and Linda decided to sell everything they had and dedicate themselves to serving the poor. The next day being Sunday, they found the nearest church, went in. They told the pastor there what they had done. The minister told him that such a radical decision wasn't really necessary. And Millard says, he told us that it was not necessary to give up everything. He just didn't understand that we weren't giving up money and the things that money could buy. We were giving up, period. Millard and Linda started an organization you're probably familiar with, Habitat for Humanity. We don't even know his name. Who could he be become? What influence might he really have had? What potential? What destiny? And the providential call of God for a person's life. And he was led by the hand away by success? Really? That's going to take the place of the holy call of God on your life? Really? Friends, our idols, the lesser gods, the little gods are defeated in our life, not by being removed from us, but by being replaced by a connection to and service for the one true God and the person of Jesus Christ. That's where real life is found. He is the one true God. So be done with the lesser gods. Let go of the little gods. Keep your focus on him. That's where you find meaning. That's where you find fulfillment. That's where you find life. Amen. Amen and amen. Now our our uh, practice in this series has been to spend these last few moments together in thought and contemplation and prayer. I want to just uh, read a little story to you as you're thoughtful and prayerful. Make the decisions you need to make. Make uh, the adjustments you may need to make in your life as you've gotten better perspective on these things. So would you bow your heads with me, close your eyes, and just, uh, just for a few moments. The God of success whispered to us, don't you want to be the king of the hill? We said, which hill? Success at any of them, all of them. And we pursued a life of climbing, always climbing, up hills, up corporate ladders, up lists, up food chains, up social registers. This God never had to make a case for what he was offering. But along the way, climbing, working, earning, achieving became ends of themselves. It was no longer about what we could do, but about whom we could outdo. If we were 
honest, we would have to say that it wasn't for the Lord or even for others that we worked, but rather for ourselves. And we had several unhappy surprises. One was that we hurt people as we climbed over them or elbowed them down the hill. Another was that we were always weary from the effort, not to mention always wary of challengers to the throne. And the greatest surprise with it was that the top of the hill wasn't nearly as great as we thought it would be. The top of the hill ended up being a pretty lonely and disappointing place. We wondered if maybe we had the wrong hill. And then we discovered one last hill. But this hill already had a king, along with three crosses standing on it. And he extends us a simple invitation, come and follow. Come and follow. And as we follow him, he turns success on its head, saying things like the first will be last and the last will be first. And then this notion, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. Then he said, consider others better than yourself. And then the coup de grace, to find your life, you must lose it. And so now we still care about success, but we define it very differently. He has become our purpose. We live for serving him, for knowing him, for pleasing him. And that's how we define success. Lord Jesus, give us the grace, the courage, the strength we need to return our perspective on you, our hope on you, and our success in you. Lord, hear our prayer in Jesus' name. And the people said, amen. Would you stand with us?